Um, the Epistle of Hebrews is a very strange name for this book. So it is definitely not an epistle, and we have no idea who the Hebrews are. But it probably means that it's addressed to people who have Jewish background, maybe Jewish believers who've come to Christ. Uh, certainly this address or this amazing uh, kind of document that's before us, uh, Book of Hebrews, is for people that have a lot of background in Judaism. They seem to understand Jewish law, Jewish themes, Jewish theology, Jewish history, and so forth. And this is the beginning of a series of sermons I will preach on the book of Hebrews. And um, this particular introduction that's before us, that uh, was read, is really nothing less than a theological explosion. That's why I should touch the microphone now, because it will create a huge explosive sound. <laughs> that's how you should feel when you enter into the book of Hebrews. And we'll just have time to look at the first three verses now, most of you already know that what we call verses in the Bible do not, are not found in the original. So we have verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, but you, realize, you should realize that in the original language here, the whole of verses 1 to 3, which is the, the focus of this entire sermon, is all one sentence in the Greek New Testament. But oh, what a sentence, okay? So we're going to look at one sentence today that wasn't found in three verses, the writer begins by saying, God has spoken, all right? This is the opening declaration of the, the epistle or the book of Hebrews. God is the God of self-revelation. He's the God of self-disclosure. He's the God who is not remaining silent. He has spoken. There's a whole history of this God who has spoken to us. He doesn't shroud himself in some you know, ineffable cloud of unknowability. He is a God who has spoken and revealed himself to us. If you know Hinduism, which I don't presume that you do, but Hindu theology uh, has a very strong theology that says, you know, God cannot be known. You cannot speak of God or speak of attributes of God. In the, in the Upanishads, for example, if anyone ever comes up and says God is and fill in the blank, you know, holy, just, righteous, all the things that we say in all of our worship and all of our discourse, there's a thing, that says, there's a refrain, neti, neti, it means not this, not this, you can't say that. Because in the Hindu world, God is unknowable. God cannot be known. You cannot speak about God. called Nirguna Brahma. It means God without qualities or God without attributes. And Buddhism, of course, doesn't even believe in God at all. It rejects all first causes. So even in this opening, opening utterance of the first part of this, there's already clear blue water separating Christianity from two of the major religions of the world, Hinduism and Buddhism. God has spoken and God has revealed himself. Now, we often speak in theology about how God reveals himself like in nature and conscience and kind of general revelation, natural theology, and then finally in his word, etc. This, this guy, this writer is so excited. He passes over all of that and he gets right into God's special revelation. And particularly, he kind of explodes on us about the prophets in many times, in many ways, God has spoken to us through the prophets. Now, this is the writer of Hebrews entering us in like an instant. If you can imagine that when we used to live in Edinburgh, Scotland, when I was doing my doctoral work, they had these amazing, uh, and they do this all over the world, of course, but the New Year's Eve there was spectacular because they would have these firework explosions. I'm sure you've seen them, you know, where you have the, the like, kaboom, this huge explosion. And you think, you're like, wow, and you think that's it. 
But after the big kaboom, there's like, kaboom, kaboom, it's really huge. You've seen that? You have certainly seen that, haven't you? Okay, okay, let's get it with it here, guys, gals. Uh, theological explosion. This is like that. It's like a huge explosion that he comes out of on the prophets. So you can, in the light of this explosion, in, the, in our forefathers, our, our foremothers, those who spoke in the past, God spoke to them. We see Abraham. They're, you know, getting called by God to leave his father, leave his mother, go to the land that he was being shown by God. I will bless you. I'll make you a great nation. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Uh, in, all, in all nations will be blessed in you. We see that through this amazing explosion with the prophets. We also see in this explosion, we see the Moses uh, in the burn, by the burning bush. And Moses there being called by God. Moses, Moses. He's called by God. And God says to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and I have seen your misery. And I have come down to rescue you. Isn't that amazing? In fact, that, that actually is the, what the church fathers call one of the great what they call preparato evangelico, the preparation for the good news, that even there at the burning bush, God is already sending the message, he is the God who comes down to rescue. It's the preparation for the incarnation already there at the burning bush. All of that is in Hebrews 1.1. In this same Hebrews 1.1, we see Moses on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from God, thundering down fire and smoke, you will be holy because I am holy, declares the Lord. God revealing his character as a holy God. In the flash of the light of Hebrews 1.1, kaboom! The, the, you know, the, the, the uh, fireworks, right? The, you see, the, uh, you see uh, Isaiah in the temple. You know, the wonderful Isaiah vision where he sees the six-winged seraphs flying with two wings they flew, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. That's the very language that's made it all the way into our liturgy, isn't it? Right there in Isaiah's amazing vision. In this light of Hebrews 1.1, we see Jeremiah as a young person standing before the Lord, thinking he's too young to be called by God. And God says, before you were even born. When you were still in the womb, I knew you. I had called you. Think about that. Many of you have to realize that God called you while you were yet even born. He had called you for the ministries he's called you to and called him to be a weeping prophet to the nations. So here we have in the light of Hebrews 1.1, we even see the tears of God for the lost nations of the world and his weeping prophet. In the light of Hebrews 1.1, we see Ezekiel, standing by the Kabar River in the time of exile. They're wondering if God was still in the speaking business. And there they are by the river. You know, remember how the, the Babylonians taunted them to you know, sing the songs of Zion. And they said, remember in the Psalms, how can we sing when we're in a distant land? Don't you have those times where you just feel like that God has forsaken everything that you've ever been involved in and you're feeling completely alone? And Ezekiel was like that. In that vision, he has the most bizarre dream. He sees a dream of these like wheels and 
wheels in the middle of the wheels turning in every direction. And then he sees above all of that a sapphire throne. And the throne is on top of all these wheels. A throne on wheels. That's a fairly unusual image. And then he sees above that Above the wheels, and the wheels in the middle of the wheels, above the throne, he sees the glory of God, and he realized a very profound truth, which only is found in the Christian gospel, by the way, that God not only sees them in their misery, but God will go into exile with him, with them. A God with wheels on his throne, who's prepared to go into exile with his people. All of that is in the wonderful flash of light of Hebrews 1 and 1. And we could go on and on, but these and every other prophet of the living God, God has spoken, he says, in many times and in various ways. So God's a speaking God. God's a revealing God. God's a God of self-disclosure. Creation, covenant, Sinai, law, the whole prophetic stream, the temple, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, it's all here in one glorious flash. But even that, light is quickly assumed against this amazing explosion that goes off in what we call verse 2. But in these last days, he has really spoken to us. In these last days, okay, he's done that and that and that, and that all of that which is enough to amaze you. But God in these last days has spoken to us by his son. And by the way, we're still in the first sentence of the book. The incarnation, the word made flesh, the word coming down. Think about Wesley's great uh, hymn, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Now we are really on Christian grounds. Now Islam had been with us there for a few minutes. They totally believe in Allah speaking through prophets. They believe in prophets and Allah speaking through prophets. But they cannot accept this. The Muslims believe very firmly that God cannot come down off his throne. And in the gospel, God comes down off his throne to rescue the human race. We are now in clear blue water. This is the Christian faith. The Muslims know the word made text, but we know the word made flesh. And that's the good news of the gospel. And this is what Hebrews is saying that he has tabernacled among us and has stepped into our history. Now, I don't know how old uh, many of you are, but the, uh, our students at least will probably, our kids are 30 and 28, so I'm guessing some of you might remember growing up watching Winnie the Pooh cartoons. Oh, right, I got a, I got a witness back there, okay. Uh, we could not have a Saturday morning without our kids uh, there in front of the television watching Winnie the Pooh. And what I love about that, where they did the opening graphics, and if you remember this, say amen, he opens up a book, and it's like, you know, Winnie the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh, whatever. And then all the little characters come alive, and they step into the drama off of the book pages. Remember that? Okay, good. That's what happens in the gospel. You know, we're turning all these pages, you know, and uh, God said this, God gave this command, God did this, and all of a sudden, oh my goodness, he's stepping off the pages. He's entering into our history. He's walking among us. This is why this is, why this is a theological explosion. Hebrews is none of this like, you know, dear so-and-so, greetings from so-and-so, none of that. He's bang, he's into this thing. He wants us to see the power of what Christ has done. 
All the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. This is the promise of this. I love that line from Michael Card, Thou the promise, the keeper of the promise. Thou the lamb and yet the shepherd. Tired eyes at last can see you. Longing lips can speak your name. This is what Hebrews is bringing to us. And then, just like the explosion of fireworks, you have seven great bursts of fireworks, theological fireworks here, where he actually declares seven truths about Jesus Christ. Let me read them to you, and we'll look at each one. This is a seven-point sermon. It hasn't started yet, okay? Hold on. One, he is the heir of all things. Two, he's the creator of the universe. Three, he's the radiance of God's glory. Four, he is the exact representation of his being. Five, he upholds or sustains all things by his powerful word. Six, he has made purification for sins. And seven, he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. All of that still in the first sentence in the Greek New Testament. Isn't that amazing? This is a theological explosion. Number one, appointed heir of all things in verse two. This is a clear connection with Psalm 2. Remember where it climaxes where the father says to the messianic son, ask of me and I will give the nations thine inheritance. The ends of the earth is thy possession. We know later on in the text, verse 5, he quotes Psalm 2. So this is in his mind that he is the heir, not just of the nations, which was envisioned in Psalm 2. He's actually the heir of all the whole universe and the eschatological world to come, all of which is in his presence as the great inbreaking of God in Jesus Christ. Two, he's the creator of the universe. Think about that. Here's the universe being brought into being by his agency. We've known about God creating the world, but now we realize that the let there be of Genesis 1 is Christ's agency in creating the world. Remember Proverbs 8 has wisdom right there with God personified creating the world. This, in fact, the wisdom of God is Jesus Christ himself who created the world, created the universe. So John says that, you know, the Gospel of John, all things were made through him and nothing was made that has been made without him. And remember the Apostle Paul in Colossians, all things have been created through him. Even the Arians couldn't deny that. Even they had to accept that. This is one of the great doctrines of the faith that Jesus Christ is the agent through whom the world was created. Three, he is the radiance of God's glory. What a wonderful word here. He uses the word apogosma, which is the word for this radiance from a source of light. You see, the, the early church had on the one hand, they had a tough assignment. The one hand they had to say, Jesus is not Yahweh. We don't, we don't confuse him with the Father. We don't teach modalism, right? But on the other hand, we need to affirm his full deity. This word perfectly captures that. It's a word that captures the sun, S-U-N, the sun in the, in the, you know, the sky, in the solar system, radiating down the light from the earth. It's different, and yet it is one. So you have the sun who radiates his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. It's a very, very powerful, powerful vision here of the God is the radiance of God's glory. For he is the exact representation of his being, still in verse 3. This is the, in fact, the language that was used in our translation is right, is the imprint of God the Father. This is like the language of a, a king with a signet ring who imprints onto 
the wax, you know, his decree. That is the imprint of God in Jesus Christ. Or the idea of a coin die, that you use the die to imprint the coins. They're always exactly alike. This is the, what is described here, that Jesus Christ is the very imprint of his being, of his essence. This is, by the way, this is the verse that finally you know, carried the day in Chalcedon in 451 A.D. when they declared that Jesus Christ is of the same essence as the Father. This is a huge Christological moment in the church, and if you know church history, they argued a ton over the two words, uh, homoousios and homoousios. Anybody here know that? The same woman who knows Winnie the Pooh knows homoousios. <laughs> Very well informed. <laughs> homoousios means of same substance. Homoousios of like substance. They said, no, 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 it wasn't like. It was the same substance. It's exact imprint of the Father. This is really one of the great Christological statements in the New Testament, part of this explosion. Five, he upholds all things by his powerful word. Now think about this. He is saying that every molecule in the universe, in the whole cosmos, is held together by the word of his power. Think about that. What is the force, what is the power that unites the whole universe together? It's one of the great mysteries of the universe. Here Hebrews declares, it's the word of God which holds it together. Jesus Christ is that great nexus which holds the whole universe together. Think of the implications of that. Even the, you know, this is not a picture of like, you know, Atlas carrying the world on his shoulders. This is a picture not simply of Christ, you know, holding the world, like the song, he got the whole world in his hands. This is also about him carrying the world to its destination, to its purpose. We need that assurance today that God's in control of the universe. We're not careening out of order. God has a plan that's unfolding in the universe. Even the nails that held Jesus to the cross, even those nails were themselves being held together by the word of his power. That's the power of Christ's work in the world. Nothing can be unfolded apart from his divine authority. Think about the four horsemen of the so-called anti-apocalypse of new atheism. Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens. They're out promulgating their word in the new atheist movement. But their word will fail because God's word always prevails. Amen to that. Sixthly, he has made purification for sins. This is the only one of the seven that's in the past tense. It's arguing and calling that this is a completed action. In Jesus Christ, God has satisfied the issue of sin. It's one of the great cosmic functions. It's here we actually move effortlessly between, you might say, ontology to soteriology, who God is, he's this, he's this, he's this, or who Christ is, and then what he has done. He has provided purification for sins. He has now provided that for us. It's one of the amazing truths of the gospel that later gets unfolded in this book. And finally, he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it concludes with the enthronement of God in Jesus Christ. Remember Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a recollection of this amazing truth that the Messiah is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And this doesn't simply mean, though it doesn't 
not mean this, but it means more than this, that there is a great chair somewhere in the universe that Jesus Christ is physically sitting on. It does mean that. It means a lot more than that. Because as Luther beautifully said, when Christ ascends, he ascends from here to everywhere, including the right hand of the Father. So the right hand of the Father is also not just a spatial point, like where he is, he's there, because if he's there, he can't be here in our Eucharist. No, we don't believe that. He reassumes his omnipresence. He assumes all of his authority as a second member of the triune God. So in some way, this is actually saying not simply a spatial point, but an authority point. He is the extensions of God's rule and reign in the world. That's why he can show up in our Eucharist, and he can be present here. We don't have to worry about him just being only there. He's everywhere through the power of God's word. So nothing happens in the universe apart from the supremacy of his glory and his divine authority. So, you got to admit, this is a theological explosion. This is the big Hebrews kaboom. And he is then going to take this. This is actually by the light of these first, this first sentence. You see the whole book already laid out before you. He's going to show Christ is superior to the angels. He's superior to the law. He's superior to the priesthood. He fulfills everything. He's going to go through the whole thing and lay it all out. But you see it all by this light right here. And during this season of Lent, as we walk by the one who's the crucified one, and we never forget that our central work and our central embodiment as God's people is to never forget that Jesus Christ is God's word and his Savior into the world. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in Jesus Christ in these last days. Lord, we were already stunned by your revelation to the prophets. We never expected that you would step off your throne and walk among us, amongst us. And yet you have done just that. But even that, we thought you would come as a king, but you walked down that mountain of transfiguration and you walked to the lowest place of the universe, the cross, where you bore the sins of the world. And it doesn't matter how deep we've been in our sins, how deep we are in our failings, you look up to the whole world from the cross of Christ. And we thank you, O God, for this great work which we have a glimpse of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.